I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Kathy Frazier. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 23rd, 2015. Coming up, we'll talk with students and their advisor about a student-built science instrument that's almost all the way to the dwarf planet Pluto. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A global task force of 174 scientists from leading research centers across 28 countries is publishing their research today about the link between mixtures of commonly encountered chemicals and the development of cancer. The study selected 85 chemicals not considered carcinogenic to humans and found 50 supported key cancer-related mechanisms at exposures found in the environment today. Long-standing concerns about the combined and additive effects of everyday chemicals prompted the organization Getting to Know Cancer, led by Lo Leroy from Halifax, Nova Scotia, to put the team together, pitching what is known about mixtures against the full spectrum of cancer biology for the first time. Cancer biologist Dr. Hemad Yasai from Brunel University, London, says that the research backs up the possibility that chemicals not considered harmful by themselves are combining and accumulating in our bodies to trigger the increasing rates of global cancer. Yasai says we urgently need to focus more research on low-dose exposure to the chemical mix in the food we eat, air we breathe, and water we drink. Overall, the scientists in the task force believe environmental chemicals could be responsible for as many as one in five cancers. Their research is published today in a special series of Oxford University Publishing's Carcinogenesis Journal. New research from Duke University could help reverse deadly side effects caused by excessive doses of the drug acetaminophen, the major ingredient in Tylenol and many other over-the-counter and prescription medicines. Acetaminophen overdose occurs when someone accidentally or intentionally takes more than the normal or recommended amount of this medication. It's one of the most common poisonings worldwide. In the United States, acetaminophen toxicity has replaced viral hepatitis as the most common cause of acute liver failure and is the second most common cause of liver failure requiring transplantation. Of course, it's best to avoid these problems by not consuming too much of this drug, but it's sometimes challenging because symptoms of the toxicity can be slow to develop. But if it does happen, now researchers at Duke University have developed a mathematical model of, of sedimentin metabolism based on data from rats. The findings suggest that giving patients glutamine, a common amino acid in the body, alongside a standard antidote for this overdose, could prevent liver damage and boost the body's ability to recover. The results appear online and are scheduled to be published in the July 2015 issue of the Journal of Theoretical Biology. In educational news, some students in Colorado will soon be able to take a crack at finding meaning in scientific data by creating infographics designed to help people visualize what the numbers are saying. 
It will happen at CU Boulder with a handful of local teachers who will be trained to use infographics in their classrooms as a tool to engage students in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields, or STEM. The researchers led by CU Boulder's School of Education, Joseph Pullman, will also offer interested high schoolers an infographics design class in July and an after-school program in the fall through CU Boulder's Science Discovery Program. And coming up in the local science news events... This Friday evening, CU's Fisk Planetarium is proud to present a film showcasing the research of our very own CU Boulder scientist, Dr. James Green, with a half-hour film highlighting the current research of Cosmic Origin Spectrograph aboard the Hubble Space Telescope, the last instrument installed by the NASA astronauts. The Cosmic Origin Spectrograph is allowing us an unprecedented view into the vast spaces between galaxies which surround our own Milky Way. with Fisk for ticket prices for this Friday night event. And coming up in mid-July, mark your calendar for the Denver Science Museum Lounge Pluto Party. Planet or not, Pluto, which is just a bit smaller than our moon, has a special reason to be celebrated thanks to the New Horizons space mission, which will be doing the world's first ever flyby of the planet in mid-July. At the Denver Science Museum in that time period, you can raise a glass and gaze out to the night sky through the telescopes and learn about the New Horizons mission that offers us a peek at Petit Pluto. And by the way, as we talk about New Horizons, we give a shout-out to How on Earth volunteer and friend Joel Parker, whose day job is at the Southwest Research Institute as an astrophysicist. Right now, Joel is pretty busy with the New Horizons mission, and we'll look forward to his reports when he returns. Speaking of New Horizons, stay tuned for a special student project that's billions of miles away right now on the New Horizons mission that is nearing Pluto. You're tuned to How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. It's been said that we are made of stardust, and it's true. Our solar system began as flecks of star-created gas and dust that drew together to form our sun, planets, us, and dust. Small wonder, then, that as the U.S. spacecraft New Horizons heads toward Pluto, dust is one of the data points. In an auditorium-sized lab at the University of Colorado in Boulder, David James checks a machine that spans the room and makes a racket. You're listening to pumps. There's a very rhythmic sound, and that's one of the cryo pumps. There's many ways to pull air out, but you have to continuously pull this air out, otherwise it will leak up to um, to atmosphere again. And so you continuously have to do this uh, for your experiments. Those pumps suck air from a tunnel so that scientists can accelerate earthbound dust to the speed of dust in space. What you're looking at here is is kind of what our dust lab is built around. And so in space, you have dust, or we call them dust a lot just because it makes sense to the the average person. But if you want to really explain it, it's kind of like little bitty tiny asteroids or meteors or these things in space that are small rocks. And so one of the things that they can do in space versus here is they can move very, very quickly because there's no atmosphere. And, And you can't do that here, otherwise you get a shooting star. It burns up in the atmosphere. So what we have here is an accelerator that accelerates dust to a very, very high speed, let's say 
uh, 20 miles in a second um, or even faster. These tests may lead to more puncture-proof shuttles and spacesuits, as well as clues for how dust works out in space. As for James, he says his dusty vocation started over a decade ago when he was a college student and joined a special college project. I came in as a graduate student, so when you finish your first four years of uh, school, and I was majoring in physics, then you can choose to go on, um, or you can choose to um, go get a job, and I wanted to go on in academic, it's kind of the, uh, the university setting, and so you get your advanced degree, and so I was looking for a project to work on, and I had this friend who's also from Arkansas, where I'm from, um, and she said, you know, I'm working on this project that's really neat, and has a lot of real-world applications, and then, you know, it's eventually going to be launched into space. Another student who joined then is Tiffany Finley. This opportunity came up and I said, what, you're going to Pluto? I would love to be part of that. Their task was to create a science instrument that would help track the journey to the first ever flyby of the dwarf planet Pluto. And as a student project, it's one of the first where students actually got to build hardware on the mission, which is normally, you know, maybe a, there'll be a camera on board one of the Mars rovers or something like that. And the education and public outreach opportunities for students to be able to, to use that camera to take a picture. But normally, you're you're never given the chance to actually be involved from the mission in building the hardware and actually contributing to the design of the spacecraft. We were allowed to be part of this mission with the understanding that we wouldn't hurt anything else on the spacecraft, and that included schedule and costs and things like that. So we had to make sure that we delivered on time so that they would actually put us on the spacecraft. So to me, I felt, you know, as a project manager, I felt that was very important. Um, and also we, you know, we wanted, we had to do a lot of due diligence to make sure that none of our circuits would affect the rest of the spacecraft at all. Like they could always just shut, out, shut us off and, you know, if there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any damage to the rest of the spacecraft because of our instrument. So we did a lot of testing and, thing, and to make sure that our instrument would survive uh, in the same way that all the other instruments would, and also that just that we wouldn't hurt the spacecraft. Part of the student's finished product is still here on Earth, a metal box about the size of half a sheet of cake. And this was our carrying case also for the instrument. Seven, six, In 2006, five, their cake-sized instrument three, launched with two, New Horizons. We have ignition and liftoff of NASA's New Horizons spacecraft on a decade-long voyage to visit the planet Pluto and then beyond. It's taken nine years for the spacecraft to reach the edge of the solar system. During that 25 billion kilometer journey, six onboard devices mostly stayed in hibernation. Now they're awake and beaming back color photographs and analysis of Pluto's chemistry. There's the LORI camera, uh, which takes black and white high-resolution images. There's the RALPH instrument, which consists of two color cameras. There's REX, which is a radio experiment, which uses the, the high-gain antenna. There, and then there's Pepsi and SWAP, which measure solar wind, and they measure energetic particles and the, and the plasma environment. Or, oh, and then there's ALICE, yeah. Uh, the ALICE, which is the ultraviolet spectrometer. I'm pretty excited about getting close to Pluto and seeing just what it's going to look like. You know, you think Pluto, it's so far away, it's going to be this cold body, like there's nothing going on, it's, it's going to just be asteroid with craters. But really, it's, it's not. Even the first images that we've gotten are the color images. There's red and black and white spot, or rust colors and red and black and 
there's rust colors and black and white areas shading on it, and so it's definitely going to be more interesting than an asteroid. For most of the other instruments, the Pluto encounter is prime time. They took a lot of science around Jupiter when we did a flyby of Jupiter, but during the rest of the mission they've been hibernating most of the time. There have been periodic times where we wake up and check out the instruments and do some calibrations and then they go back to sleep. As for the seventh instrument, it's the one created by students. We've been operating ever since launch, so we've gotten data the whole way out, so we've already gotten some great science data. It's been hard at work since launch to measure and count space dust. Every single speck of dust carries information from its birthplace. University of Colorado physics professor Mihaly Haranyi is principal investigator and advisor for the Student Dust Counter Project. And we learn not only just about the piece of dirt that hit our instrument, but its entire history through the solar system. It was generated and born and traveling across thousands and thousands of miles to, to, the, to the place where we detect them. Haranyi says that student labor made this project affordable, while the project has helped many college students do more than wish upon a star. James, for instance, now has a career calibrating space instruments. Finley leads the New Horizons science operations team. So it's a win-win. Look at these young people, how well-educated, how well-trained, how ready to do real work they are. And by the way, Tiffany should have mentioned as the project manager, she was so worried about timely delivery that she was the first to show up, beating all other professional instruments. The student dust counter was the very first that was bolted on New Horizons. So the question was, why is this built by students, this instrument, even though it is science is so important and it's fundamentally of interest to have such an inter instrument on any spacecraft wherever you go in the solar system, especially if you go far away. So initially it was not part of New Horizons. An instrument like this was part of a competing mission that was not selected. It was bigger, fancier, more expensive, and when we, that instrument was not selected, then Alan Stern, who is the principal investigator of New Horizons, and I were talking, how on earth could we get another instrument on board after the selection, which is in principle a big no-no. You can't do that. Once a mission is selected, you can't sneak on new instruments, regardless how good your intentions are. And then the idea came that we could simplify it, we could make it smaller, we could possibly make it less expensive. And being built by students, so it comes from a different pot of money. It comes from the education and public outreach resources of the mission. And we are kind of, stealing is not the right word, redirecting funds from educating teachers and making, you know, advertisements and posters and flyers, we can actually use this money to build hardware. And that was unusual, and we had to go back to NASA headquarters, and we had to get a lot of permissions and jump through a lot of hoops. But with Alan Stern's support, with the support of University of Colorado, this instrument was allowed to be built as a student instrument and get on board, and now it's almost at Pluto. Today, a new team of college students analyzes data for the project, including the chance for a change in space dust. Hits, increases might indicate the tail of a nearby comet or colliding asteroids, data that might help map new regions of space. Also, Horani says, sometimes space dust is dangerous. 
100 micron sized particles like the thickness of your hair if they ever hit the spacecraft at 10 15 kilometers per sec that's an end of mission event it's over it will go through a millimeter of alumina and puncture a hole in your fuel tank possibly and that is mission over speeding rocks are more common in the dusty realm closer to earth where they have occasionally damaged shuttles and spacecraft Forty years ago, fears also ran high about sending a spacecraft through another dusty place, the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Fortunately, dust counters on early missions showed a low hit rate in the asteroid belt, even from tiny particles. The business of measuring dust actually started very early on with the desire to explore the solar system. You might not recall Pioneer 10 and 11 in the 70s, before Voyagers, the question came, we do have an asteroid belt. There are a lot of small objects that collide all the time. It was not clear that you could fly across this region at all, or you're going to be sandblasted and bombarded with sufficient energies and momenta that you will actually never make it across. Turns out that the dust production, fortunately, is low, and you could fly safely across, as we have done since then countless times. So fortunately, through the history of this business, we rarely, if ever, in deep space, were hit at this, those high speeds with these particles that are in the dangerous size range. And Harani says that from Earth to Pluto today, the student dust counter's been okay. Even at Saturn, which has this beautiful ring structure, full with dust, we were never hit by a particle that is 100 micron or so. What's more, for most of New Horizons' journey, dust hits have been evenly distributed and sparse. It's contrary to... Our first expectation, the dust density beyond Jupiter seems remarkably steady. doesn't change a whole lot within a factor of two in our measurement. It seems steady. And that immediately tells a lot about the production rate and the size distribution of the objects that generates this dust. Now he's yet to see, yet to be seen, what happens beyond Pluto, what happens beyond 40 or 45 astronomical unit further away. One astronomical unit, of course, is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. We are 40 times further away by now. And if you go further out, then we can certainly tell you about, we can construct models that how should you have the source bodies distributed to allow for the dust to be measured as we measure them. Even with the measurements in hand. Harani suspects that space dust comes from the most unexplored and largest region of our solar system, the icy Kuiper Belt, which includes Pluto, asteroids the size of mountain ranges, and enough objects bashing into each other to produce a lot of dust. We can already tell you that the dust production in this Kuiper Belt, I cannot tell you a whole lot about the structure yet, but I can tell you by the amount of dust that we measure, it has to be that the production rate of dust in the Kuiper Belt in our size range is about six tons of dust every second and that slowly migrates inward towards the solar system and meets up with the spacecraft and we make this measurement, which is typically an impact rate of a handful a week. But to produce that handful a week impact rate out on the outskirts of the solar system, you have to produce six tons of dust every second. After this summer's flybys of Pluto, most New Horizons instruments will shut down. But the newest member of the Student Dust Project Marcus Paquette says there's a reason for one instrument to stay awake. If you look on a day-to-day -day human scale, you would say there's not very much dust, but the solar system is a very big place, and overall there's a lot of dust. <laughs> you 
So I was a very unique time coming in. Um, as I've said, New Horizons has been flying for almost 10 years now. Um, I got past the torch about at the Pluto encounter phase. So as we're right passing through Pluto and going on into the Kuiper Belt, I get to see sort of the dust uh, measurements coming from that, which is really exciting because we've seen it all throughout the solar system here. And now we're actually getting to the Kuiper Belt and being able to see, you know, what the dust environment looks like um, in the Kuiper Belt is really exciting for me. Barring any big hits from big particles of dust, it's estimated that for the next two decades, New Horizons will travel through the Kuiper Belt and beyond, with the student dust counter sending data and students studying it. University of Colorado physics professor Mihaly Haranyi. I think we are slightly over 30 students by now. The plan is that it will remain a student instrument and many more generations of students. Marcus will hand off in a year or so, we have to find, you know, the runner-up that they can start talking. There will be an, enough overlap that Marcus can educate the next one in line. And that hopefully will go on to the best of my understanding about how much power we have, how much uh, interest there is to follow this mission. It could go on for another 20 years, maybe even longer. And now the purple dust of twilight time steals across the meadows of my heart. High up in the sky the little stars climb Always reminding me that we're apart For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Slender. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. I produced today's show and was the engineer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Nobukazu Takamuro and Bing Crosby singing Stardust, written by the wonderful Hoagie Carmichael. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kathy Frazier. And I'm Shelley Schlender.